We greet you this Wednesday evening for our next installment and the final installment in this particular series for our Wednesday evening adult Bible study. I invite you to take your Bible and open to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22. If memory serves correctly, this originally began as a series through the 66 books of the Bible where each message was intended to be a one-shot overview of each book to help us make sense of the individual parts and then get a greater grasp of the whole. And I believe we began this all the way back in 2019, I think. So in other words, like the 1800s. Because anything before COVID feels a long time ago. But we come now tonight to wrap up this study. We're open to Revelation chapter 22. Tonight we're going to walk through the final verses, beginning in verse 6 of chapter 22 through the end of the chapter, verse 21. We'll ask for God's blessing upon our study tonight, and then we'll walk right into the passage. Father in heaven, we come to you this Wednesday evening, thankful again for the fact that you have disclosed yourself, revealed yourself, you have spoken in this most precious book, the Holy Bible. We thank you that you've revealed and given us this great plan that you have created all things, all things are working and acting according to your sovereign decree. Clouds arise, tempests blow by order from your throne. And that indeed you have orchestrated all things that your son would be lifted high and exalted, he being this great savior whom you've provided for us weak, needy sinners. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace, the grace even that you would speak and give us this Bible and even be so kind to reveal to us what it is that is to come, to even give us this clear glimpse and picture of what the full, final, new heaven and new earth will be like. We read of these things. These are realities greater than even what we can comprehend, that you indeed are a God greater than we could ever imagine. And we long to be with you. But Lord, until that time comes, you want us to be faithful in the present. So as we wrap up our study tonight, take these final words, impress them upon our hearts, that we might then live faithfully for your glory be our guide and teacher. We ask this for our Savior's sake. Amen. Amen. Revelation 22. Tonight, the message is simply entitled, The End. The End. Now, just by way of recap, last time we began to walk through uh, and sort of circle around and one final time impress upon us the words that really make the, the conclusion to the main body of the book of Revelation. Chapter 22, verses 1 through 5, and we tried to take some time to trace even a few of these threads, helping us again to grasp what makes heaven heaven is the fact that God is there. The God who has created us and the God who has so graciously saved us in and through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That the great privilege, the great blessing, the greatest privilege, the greatest blessing will be that there in that place, which is a new heaven and a new earth, with no sin, no curse, no sickness, no sorrow, no suffering. Praise God, no Satan. That there, 
I mean, a utopia in the fullest sense, the grandest sense of that word. For all eternity, we will behold Him. We will see Him. And who is the Him? Chiefly, I would say, the God-man. God the Son, beholding Him, seeing Him face to face. Think, this Jesus that we read of in the Bible, the Jesus prophesied in the Old Testament, the Jesus who comes to earth, God incarnate, taking on the, the frailty, the humility of a human body, a human nature, uh, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail incarnate deity. That the very Savior who lived the life that we needed to live but haven't, died the death and took the punishment that we should have received, He took it, then rising from the grave, back to God's right hand, the Savior who will come again for His people, that will be caught up with Him in the air, the Savior who will come to this earth for 1,000 years, reign as the earthly King, the Savior who this very moment intercedes for us, the very Savior who as our High Priest sympathizes with us, knows the weaknesses that we have, understands what it's like to be tempted, he himself undergoing suffering. How he sympathizes and is able to give us the grace and the mercy that we very much need now in the present. This Jesus, we will long at last be with him. Never to be parted. Never to have to look at the clock and say, oh, I have to head home now. Perfectly with him, as verse 4 says, they will see his face. What a thought. And as we said last time, all the imagery here, beginning in chapter 22, especially going back into chapter 21, it reminds us of the way it all began in the perfect world and in that garden, Eden, but how this will be so much better than Eden. In fact, there's a, a wonderful summary, especially of verses 3 through 5 from an older commentator that as he would look on these verses, he would uh, explain them this way, again, helping us grasp how great this will be. Or he said, there will be no more curse. In other words, perfect restoration. The throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. Perfect administration. His servants shall serve him. Perfect submission. They shall see his face. Perfect transformation. His name shall be in their foreheads. Perfect identification. There will be no night there. There will be no need for candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord gives light forever. Perfect illumination. And they shall reign forever and ever. Perfect exaltation. Again, we long for that. And if we don't, let's check our hearts, lest this earth has grown greater than it should be in our eyes. But as we come now to the end, the remaining verses of chapter 22, if you want to give a label to it, it's the epilogue of Revelation, the epilogue, the, the closing comments, the final words, parallel to the prologue, the way Revelation began all the way in chapter 1, especially verses 1 through 3. Now, as it is the epilogue, and it's coming at the end of Revelation, and not just that, let's again remember, this is the, the capstone of the rest of the Bible. This is the final, final 
Revelation from God to sum up Revelation, to sum up the New Testament, to sum up the Old Testament, all of Scripture. No doubt there's going to be some final familiar themes. There's going to be some imagery that's been brought up before. One last time, a few things will be said that, again, for one final time, impress upon us what God desires to communicate to us. I think it would be helpful to hear the whole passage in its entirety before we make our trip through these last verses. So look with me at Revelation chapter 22, beginning in verse 6. I'll read there through the end of the chapter, again, reminding us this is God's Word. John records, And he said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and the one who is filthy still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Behold, I am coming quickly. And my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, and the immoral persons, and the murderers, and the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices lying. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root of and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. And all of God's people say, Amen. Thus, Revelation concludes. So what are we to learn from this epilogue? As I said, some final words, some final thoughts, hooks really to hang our thoughts on. There are six phrased, each with the description final 
And as we work through them, we'll give them to you. The first thought that we need to grasp tonight is this, making sense really of verses 6 through 11. Final instruction. Final instruction. Again, coming to the end of Revelation, and indeed all the revelation that has come before it, this angelic figure speaking to John, which interestingly, you probably saw it in the reading of these verses, there's sort of an interplay at places, the angel who reveals these things to John, he speaks, then there are places where suddenly Jesus himself speaks, then John speaks, then Jesus speaks, this whole uh, symphony of voices in these final words. The angel speaks to John, and in this final instruction, he says in verse 6, these words are faithful and they're true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. It's as if this angel, as John having seen this vision, and and the vision concludes, and he's uh, in his memory trying to continue to mull over these grand uh, sights and the vision he's seen and ponder the words that he's heard with that echoing in his ears. The angel says, John, everything that you have seen Everything that you have heard, indeed what you have been instructed to write. Because you remember back in chapter 1, John was instructed, this vision that you receive, put pen to parchment, write and record what you're receiving. And it's as if John, taking this all in, maybe even if he were literally recording it all as he received it, he looks down at what he's written, and the angel says, these words, John, don't ever forget, they are faithful, they are indeed true. Another way of saying the revelation here, it's reliable. It's reliable. In fact, even from this, how we could build out a whole theology of revelation and really scripture, another indicator, the way that the Bible will view and look at itself, speak of itself, it's inerrant, without error, it's infallible, it won't lead you astray. It indeed is reliable, much like God, since this is his word, it will reflect his character as God is perfect, as God is reliable, and most certainly should be trusted. Oh, John, his word, this revelation that you've received, it bears that same quality and character. It's reliable. In fact, it's quite in line with the way God has communicated his revelation long, long ago. The Lord, it says, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. It's as if uh, deliberately it's bringing up the same God who used human instruments guided by the Holy Spirit, which human instruments, the prophets, no doubt the prophets of the Old Testament, as God used them to communicate His revelation, and that is to be trusted. Oh, it's this same God who's spoken, who's given this vision, and indeed these words then, faithful and true, always to be trusted. 
In fact, it makes us even think of that Old Testament prophecy. Uh, So much could be said, but all the Old Testament prophecy, thinking even all the, the detailed prophecy, prophecy about the nation of Israel and what would happen to her. Prophecy about how God would treat and respond to Israel depending upon her obedience or disobedience and the record of God keeping his word with that. Prophecy concerning God's rescue mission, sending forth the seed of the woman who would come and crush the serpent and the very specific detailed prophecy about this figure. None other than the Messiah. His arrival, his coming to earth, how that all very particularly and specifically was fulfilled. In fact, it's as if the angel here is reminding John, just as that prophecy was fulfilled with Christ's first coming, will that not all the more be fulfilled with his second coming and these things here? which must soon take place? Answer, yes. So John, this angel says, the revelation is reliable. Latch on to that. Hold tightly to that. Don't ever depart. In fact, as he says and reminds how many times we've heard it of these things which must soon take place. And we're going to hear it even a few more times in these last verses. The reminder, this all here is imminent. More than we realize, this will so quickly come to pass. This indeed is what must soon take place. We may not know all the exact particulars. Certainly we could look at a newspaper and depending on the day, think, oh, what in the world is going on in our world today? But at least this much we can do. What has been outlined clearly in this book, like a date on the calendar, we know not when, but how quickly we'll arrive there. The next thing we know, it will happen. You and I then need to be living in expectation of these things and truly believing this this is all imminent. Christ's return is imminent. His return for his people, calling them up into the air. Yes, even the rapture, this is imminent. More on that later as John will bring that up again and again. Not only that though, Please note, we're coming to the very end, not just of Revelation, but as we've said, of the Bible. And one more time, the stamp of approval, what God has given, it's faithful and it's true, breathed out by God. Did you even sense the finality of this revelation? There's not really a parenthesis here, oh, by the way, When God gives more revelation in the future, make sure you write it down and add it to this uh, Bible. No, all built in here is this very clear expectation. John, this is it. This is the capstone to the rest of the Bible. In fact, more on that in a moment. That's a word specifically to so many of the cults today. So if we're to give a label to this uh, final instruction, again, there's a few elements to the final instruction in verses 6 through 11. It's as if the angel's reminding John, John, trust the word of God. Indeed, trust the word of God as he's given you this book, Revelation. But as it's breathed out by God, no doubt this applies equally to all of what God has breathed out in Scripture. Trust the Word of God. These words are faithful and true. You know, we say these things, we, we, we look out, you could be sitting here tonight wrestling with some doubts. Maybe you saw some news article, some claim of science that, that 
leaves you unsettled and you're really not sure what to do with that. Friend, it can be as simple as this. You can trust what God has spoken. His character is trustworthy, is it not? The very word then that he speaks is trustworthy. You can even think, my father's words, I can trust him. I can trust what he said. So, final instruction, trust the word. But then moving into verse 7, again, relaying some elements of the final instruction. Suddenly, the speaker shifts. It's not the angel talking. It seems as if it's Jesus talking. Because verse 7 says, And behold, as if to get our attention, I, spoken in the first person, I am coming quickly. The one indeed who's been the whole focus of the entirety of this book. The lamb who's set forward in chapter 5. Who opens the scroll. Who breaks the seal. The one that we're longing for his return. He speaks. He says, I am coming quickly. Again, Jesus is saying, this is imminent. This is imminent. He's issuing a promise. He is coming and he is coming quickly. And how, how we will see, certainly, once these last events are in motion, it indeed will all take place so quickly. But not only that, truly, as commentators have mentioned, every generation of Christians ought to live with the expectation and even the preparation that at any moment our Lord can return. Clearly, this message is emphasized here three times even we hear directly, I am coming quickly. It's said in verse 7. It's going to be said in verse 12. It's going to be said again in verse 20. You can even think the final words, what are you going to choose to emphasize? Three times this is stressed. At least that must communicate either we're slow to believe it or we often forget it. And again, stamping that upon us one last time. Not only Jesus, we could take time to trace through the New Testament, the apostles themselves lived with that same expectation and urgency. In fact, the adult Sunday school class this past week, you remember James, likely the very first New Testament book written, the beginning of chapter 5, he refers to these, this as the last times, the last days. We need to believe this imminency. We need to even sense the urgency and hear this message. He says, I'm coming quickly. And again, something we've heard many times in Revelation, it surfaces again. Another one of these beatitudes Uh, pronouncements of blessing, blessing in the fullest sense of that term, really God's blessing, God's favor. What does Jesus say? Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. In fact, said in such a way, blessed is he who hears and who heeds, and really who keeps, and who obeys, and who takes seriously the words of the prophecy of this book. Someone who does that, Jesus himself pronounces, there will be divine blessing on such an individual. Again, long ago in a Sunday school class far away when I was in high school, I remember a teacher long, long ago uh, said, if you read through Revelation, you'll get a blessing. And I sat there as a freshman and I thought, hey, I want a blessing. And I sat and read through Revelation. You know, there's truth to that, but Note what it says, not just he who hears it or even reads through it, but he who keeps and obeys it. Pressing upon us, we don't just sit here tonight as auditors of the word of God. 
you know, uh, kind of getting some of the benefits of the class, but not really a full participant. Oh no, the Christian life always is calling us to this full, wholehearted participation and obedience, even with the specific words of this final book. Blessed is the one who heeds and keeps the words of the prophecy here. Why do we say all of that? Well, if you are here tonight as a Christian and you've sat through this study, you are one uniquely in this position. You've heard the message of Revelation. You've traced and you've seen the storyline and the regular calls to live in light of our Savior's return. Put simply, in light of this, let's press on keeping these things. Let's press on in the expectation of Christ's imminent return. And you and I then can find and have and enjoy that blessing. Again, good reminder, good admonition for us tonight. As John MacArthur would state it, God does not command believers to read Revelation merely to satisfy their curiosity about the future. God inspired revelation for one purpose, to reveal the glory of His Son and call believers to live godly, obedient lives in light of His soon return. Again, borrowing language from 2 Peter chapter 3, in light of these things, what kind of people ought you to be? in godliness and holy conduct. So final instruction, he says, trust the word of God. Not only that, obey the word of God. Specifically what we've heard and read in this book, but no doubt that applies to all of God's word. And you know, it's at this point that you've read it, we heard it. Verses 8 and 9 record another one of these very curious moments. That maybe we read it and and we're just really not sure what to do. We'd simply say by example and even by exhortation, there's still another final instruction here that we're trying to latch on to. And again, the final instruction, this is just verses 6 through 11. More to come, but we'll get there. Don't worry, I see the clock. Again, angel spoke, Jesus spoke, now John speaks. Again, he, the eyewitness, he, the one recording this, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. Eyewitness testimony. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship God. Wait, is that what your translation says? You hanging with me tonight? Another one of these occurrences where John, it says, falls down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. I mean, I'm speaking for myself here. I don't know if you have, but I've read this passage in another place in Revelation, and I've read it before, and I I just think, John, what are you doing? Why are you worshiping an angel? In fact, this very similarly happened back in chapter 19. John made the mistake not only once, but twice. And yes, John, the apostle, the one who, in John's gospel, uh, this is the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is the last and longest living apostle. This is the one who heard and saw and touched and proclaims to us the words of life, as First John will begin the one who uniquely uh, comes to saving faith, begins to follow Jesus as a teenager, and by estimation is still alive in the 80s or 90s AD, and writes and records the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and now finally Revelation. And at the end of all of this, he takes it all in, and he drops to his knees 
to worship an angel? I mean, come on, John, don't you know better? Again, let this sink in. John's age, John's maturity, John's wisdom. He's likely in his 80s or 90s. He's known and he's walked with God for many, many years. No doubt these truths are great and wonderful and overwhelming. He's moved by them. Uh, The whole text, as it were, is coming upon the whole man. His mind, his affections, his will, so that he just bursts out and collapses, bowing and worshiping. Here's the distinction. Worshiping the servant rather than the Savior. Wait a second. When we begin to phrase it like that, perhaps this isn't something so unique and odd just to John, but in fact could be something that you and I have done. giving undue adulation to the servant rather than the Savior. Thinking through this, perhaps this is more common than we realize. In fact, without even realizing it, our Christian life, we begin to uh, locate and tie our identity to a servant. Our significance to a servant we draw some extra security because of our proximity to a servant. Could it even be that without realizing it, we've actually begun to put our trust in the servant? The result being our love for the servant has grown greater than it ought to be, and the love for the servant could actually borderline on idolatry. In fact, could it even be that we confuse our spiritual maturity with the identity of the servant? Maybe you're sitting here thinking, what what exactly do you mean? Perhaps we've been tempted to say, and not just say, but when we say it down in the heart, you know, there's something there to it. You know, fill in the blank is my pastor, servant. Fill in the blank, servant, is the one who baptized me. Fill in the blank, servant, married me. I heard fill in the blank at a conference. I had time with fill in the blank, servant, you know, one-on-one. I went to the conference and fill in the blank uh, looked at me. I went to the conference, fill in the blank, they talked with me. In fact, I was able to go to the conference again and talk with this individual, and would you you know, fill in the blank, the servant remembered me. And we would never say it, but perhaps down in the heart, we're committing the same act here that John is, falling on his knees before the servant. Perhaps even thinking it's as if we have a bonus spiritually compared to other Christians. You know, there's there's the rest of you Christians, but because of my proximity to this particular servant of the Lord, You know, I I got a a notch or two up higher. John here does it with an angel, an angel that is simply a servant of God. For us, putting it very directly, you and I, if we're not careful, can do the same thing with pastors, teachers, elders, professors, authors, conference speakers, this teacher with this ministry, that teacher with that podcast, on and on it goes. Now hear me. It's good and it's right for us to remember and give thanks to God for such servants. But let us give thanks to God for such servants. Listen, if John falls prey to this twice, 
we ought to be on high alert lest we commit the same act. Let's not confuse the servant with the Savior. Let's be careful not to confuse the human shepherd with the chief shepherd. This is a real danger. If it's a danger for John in his time, how much more in our celebrity-soaked culture, which can even creep into good places like biblical Christianity. In fact, putting this quite directly, Robert Murray McShane in the 1800s, he put it like this. He said, he warned, a pastor will make a very poor savior on the last day. Let's hear that tonight. So what's the final instruction? He said, trust the word of God, obey the word of God, worship the God of the word. Not only that, picking up the pace. Again, I I see the clock. I know what time's working against me. What else does he say in the final instruction, verse 10? He said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. Why? For the time is near. He says, spread the word. He's saying, don't seal it up. Don't contain it and hide it away. No, no, by not sealing it up, it's intended that you would share it, that you would spread it, that you would proclaim it. In fact, proclaim the message of this book specifically, but no doubt all of God's word in its entirety. In fact, even thinking of this book and its message specifically, yes, that even means its message about its eschatology. Don't seal it up. Don't hide it away, but no, share it, spread it, proclaim it. And in fact, note the words, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. Again, another, another way the Bible views itself, the way the Bible views itself as revelation from God, the emphasis upon the words, the emphasis upon them meaning it's intelligible, it's understandable. The message has been revealed in words. In fact, ironically, what was shared in the seminary chapel today, God, as he spoke, didn't speak with a lisp or a speech impediment. By means of these words, he spoke clearly. And so for us, we need to take great care to understand the words, the writing, and not seal it up, but spread it. Spread the word of God. Oh, that's the instruction. And in fact, rounding out this first final instruction, again, trust the word of God, obey the word of God, worship the God of the word, and spread the word of God. Verse 11 tells us, let the one who does wrong still do wrong, the one who's filthy still be filthy. However, on the other hand, let the one who's righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. What is John talking about? It's an odd statement, but rather it makes sense as John has put such emphasis upon this message, the words, the word of God that he's revealed. It's as if verse 11 is simply outlining, no matter what, you're going to respond to this word. No matter what you do, you are in fact responding to this word either correctly or even incorrectly. And in a very blunt, direct way, it's as if John is saying, uh, if this word doesn't change you, it's rather going to confirm you. Could even confirm you in your wrongdoing. Confirm you in your filthiness. I mean, it's said in this proverbial way, reminiscent even of Proverbs chapter 1, the way that one responds to lady wisdom, reminiscent of Proverbs chapter 9, in light of such wisdom, the personal responsibility for how we receive it. It's as if it says, listen, you're going to reject this, you're going to do wrong, go then and do wrong. 
You're not going to heed this message. You're going to live in your filthy sin. Go, therefore, and live in your filthy sin. It's a way of stressing present choices fix character. In fact, a time is coming when change of that character could and will be impossible. Yeah, that, that, that ought to alarm us tonight. Other places, as I said, Proverbs 1, Proverbs 9, it will stress this pre- personal responsibility. In fact, as the commentator Walvard put it, present choices will become permanent in character. It's John's way of saying, if somehow you're hearing this and you haven't yet given your life to this great Lord and Savior, be careful and beware. Don't think you can just put it off for another day. You've heard the saying, the same sun that melts the wax hardens what? The clay. Let's be careful that that's not you or I tonight. That's the final instruction. We move to verses 12 through 6. What's another hook we can put our thoughts on tonight? Final clarification. Final clarification about Christ, who he is. About Christ's return and how it is imminent. Even clarification about who is Christ's follower and who is Christ's enemy. Verse 12 again, Behold, I am coming quickly. There's clarification. If we haven't heard it already, again, it's put before us. But Jesus will go on to say, My reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. Again, we've seen earlier unbelievers and what they've done that at the great white throne judgment, all that they've done will be brought before, the records will be opened, and on the basis of their sinful works, they will be punished and judged. But even here, there's meant to be this incentive. In fact, even like the parable that Jesus will give in Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30, the parable of the talents. There was one servant who received five talents, and in the time that he had, he worked hard, and he brought about the five talents he received and five more talents that he then offers up to his master. And his master, on receiving these talents, says, you know these words, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. For believers here, there's this this theology, our present faithfulness for Christ. It doesn't earn us salvation. But no, there's blessing that we will enjoy even to greater degree in heaven based on our faithfulness now in the present. And the way that you and I live, the the sacrifices that we make for Christ, the ill treatment we receive on his behalf, and, and when we live faithfully and respond rightly, God is watching and God is taking note of it all. So that then with him, in light of our faithfulness, there will be such a reward greater than we could think that we'll enjoy. What blessing. 
and even with this clarification about his return and what it will bring when we're with him, there's clarification about this Christ. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. As we said again, this is the epilogue. We've heard many of these things before. In fact, back in chapter 1, verse 8, Alpha and Omega appears, but it's linked with this figure who is called God. But here, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Put two and two together, what does that give us? Another one of those subtle ways the Bible's reinforcing Jesus indeed is God. Very God of very God. Beginning in the end, we saw that back in chapter 21, spoken of God. Jesus says, I am the beginning and the end. Another subtle reminder that he is indeed God. First and the last, not just New Testament, that even takes us back to the Old Testament, to Isaiah chapter 41 verse 4, chapter 48 verse 12, where there the God revealed that we would call Yahweh... Jesus taking on that same description, another subtle reminder, even in the Old Testament to now, that Jesus indeed is God. Jesus is divine. And he is even the blessed and boundless God, the, uh, the uh, beginning and goal of all things, the source and the end of all things, the one through whom all things have been made, all things have been made through him and for him. The God who proclaims, I am who I am, the God who is unlimited, eternal, immutable, sovereign, and perfect. The God who's not bound in any way. That's who this Jesus is. There's also clarification about his followers. Verse 14, blessed Get another beatitude, the seventh and final in the book of Revelation. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to enter the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Again, imagery we've heard before in Revelation back in chapter 7, verse 14, where it's said of the tribulation martyrs faithful to Jesus even unto death, that they're brought into heaven and they are the ones who've had their robes washed. They've washed their robes and they've made them white in the blood of the Lamb. John here bringing up that same language, using it to describe citizens of heaven, to remind us even as there's clarity about who Jesus' followers are, heaven is for those who've been saved and sanctified by the Lamb. Heaven will be populated by those who've gone to the Lamb, indeed as we sing to children, what can wash my sins away? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. They are the ones who are blessed. They're the ones who have the right to the tree of life. They're the ones who get to enter into the gate of the city. John's way of reminding us, holy people will be in heaven. Righteous people will be in heaven. People in heaven are those who are justified by God and indeed sanctified by God, who then will be glorified by God, spotless, pure, perfect, righteous. What about those who aren't? There's clarity given those who aren't Christ's true followers, but rather are his enemies. Outside, you see the description. There's the dogs. 
not referring, referring to canines. But dogs used in the way that dogs were viewed in the time that this was written. Not like someone's personal pet, a domestic pet, but scavengers used as a way to describe those outside the fellowship. Immoral, filthy, sinful, scandalous in their sin. If that's you and you haven't come to repent of your sin and trust in this Savior and in some way you want to hold on to that sin and think you can carry it with you like your personal bag through the gate into heaven, John says you're going to be outside. And in fact, you won't be alone. Sorcerers will be out there. Those who would engage in occultic practices and even uh, the particular drug abuse that would go along with it. Those who are immoral people, sexually immoral. Those who will double down and make a deeper dive into impure immoralities with no break, no change, no godly, genuine repentance those who are idolaters, who would worship false gods, or even commit the grave mistake of worshiping the right God the wrong way, thinking that they can approach God on their terms rather than on His terms. And not only that, please take note, everyone who loves and practices lying. The world would call this a pathological liar. Jesus gives the clarification, these individuals will not be in heaven. And indeed, it would be pastoral malpractice for me to not say if that has described you Again, the way he writes, this is, this is characteristic of them. This is what they're known for. This is what they live in and live for and love. That if that's you and you haven't repented of that, be warned, Jesus clarifies, no matter what you say, by means of how you live, it reveals you're in the company of those who will not be in heaven. Again, this is Jesus drawing the line in the sand with this clarification. Maybe you're sitting here and you're wrestling with that. Maybe an illustration could help. Think of the difference between a sheep and a pig in relation to mud. A sheep may fall into mud. True of every Christian, we fall into sin. But pigs live in the mud. True of every unbeliever, they live in their sin. Final clarification. In fact, Jesus will bring the attention back on himself, reminding us again, not only is he truly God, but he is truly man. Indeed, he is the long-awaited promised Messiah. I, Jesus. In fact, the only place in Revelation where he will name himself and describe himself in the first person like this, I, Jesus. I've sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. He sent the messenger. He's the one giving the revelation. And who is he? I'm the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. What is that? That's 
Old Testament language describing the promised Messiah. Isaiah chapter 11, describing him as the root and descendant of David, that he would be both David's son and David's Lord. And bright morning star, oh, going back to Numbers 24, out of the mouth of Balaam, the most unlikely of persons, a prophecy was uttered long ago of a star that would come forth from Jacob, a scepter shall rise from Israel. Who is that? Jesus says, that's me. The promised Savior, the promised Messiah, the true King. Final instruction, final clarification, final invitation. Verse 17, the Spirit and the Bride say, come. Oh, in light of these things, the bride of Christ, true believers, issue forth this cry that Jesus would come and return, and not only him, not only them, but even the Holy Spirit. Why? His ministry to lift up and to exalt Christ, uh, him for so long seen this true Christ, despised, belittled, mocked, rejected. Oh, how he longs with the bride of Christ to see this king return and lift it high. But not just that. Note the invitation. Let him who hears say, come. Let the one who's thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. Yes, at the very end of the Bible, oh, how it begins with a great declaration in the beginning, God. But now, even at the very end of the Bible, it is this very God who issues this invitation. Come, come and drink. Come, you who thirst, take the water of life without cost. That indeed at the very end of the Bible, there's the free and full offer of the gospel. Without cost. You sense your need, this God says, behold, come to me that you might live. What an invitation. Again, not even just John issuing this, not even the angel issuing this, but the Savior himself pleading, inviting to all, come to me that you might have life. The final invitation In fact, even in light of that clarification, you could be sitting here unsettled and uncertain inside, maybe reflecting on your own sin and guilt and filthiness and shame. And this Savior says, bring it to me and I will wash you clean. Final admonition, verses 18 and 19. Very strong warning. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues written in this book. Be careful that you don't add to this revelation. And oh, be careful that you don't take away from this revelation. Both worded quite strongly guarding and warning anyone who would dare tamper with God's word. Yes, revelation, but no doubt the entirety of God's full revelation. Let there not be any Thomas Jeffersons approaching the Bible thinking, what can I cut out and take away? Let there not be any like Joseph Smith who would think, oh, God has given to me more revelation that I'll add to this book and Bible. A word for all cults, a word for all false teachers. Let us beware and be careful and heed that we give due reverence to God's perfect, holy 
word. Final admonition, final petition. Verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, yes, third time, I am coming quickly. Amen, yea, verily. What then is the response? What's the prayer and petition? Come, Lord Jesus. As simple as that. That the final prayer here in the Bible would be a prayer that Jesus would return. Oh, you've heard that word, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. And then the final benediction, verse 21. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Then indeed, as the Bible will close, this blessing's pronounced that God's grace would be with us, the very grace of the Lord Jesus, the grace that we need, the grace that we live by, the grace that will even issue us forth into his very presence. And thus, Revelation in the Bible will end with that word, Amen. Verily, verily, truly, truly, May it be so, may it be so. Father, we thank you for this wonderful book, the greatest story ever told. Indeed, the never-ending story. For what these realities are will last into the endless ages of all eternity. In light of these words, we do pray, come, Lord Jesus. May your grace be with us, O Lord. May we then live in light of this great word and this great prophecy that we would take it seriously, that we would trust it, that we would obey it, that we would spread it, that we would be careful not to add or take away from it, and oh, that we would worship you the one who has given it to us. And God, for for any, any here tonight who have not yet obeyed the command of our Savior to repent and to believe the gospel, may they hear tonight from his own lips that simple invitation, come, come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. May you make that invitation effectual tonight in the heart of those who need it. We ask this for our Savior's great sake. Amen.